Welcome to Hub Headlines. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Today's program features the best commentary and analysis published in The Hub for February 15th. Up first is Phil Gursky, writing on why Canada needs to expand the role of CSIS to incorporate foreign intelligence, stressing the importance of Canada effectively contributing to the five eyes, and why we need our own version of the CIA. What's so foreign about Canada having another spy agency? Canada is a proud member of an intelligence club known as the Five Eyes, which has been around in various forms since shortly after the Second World War, originally consisting of the UK and the US, but now encompassing Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. It is by far the world's premier intelligence-sharing network, where very sensitive data including signals intelligence, is sent back and forth among the Allies. All this secret information can contribute to better policy and decision-making by our government's top officials. And yet, we in Canada are different. Our country is the only Five Eyes member without a foreign intelligence service. This has been a long-standing issue that has been raised in public from time to time, but as of 2024 is still unresolved and unlikely to be so anytime soon. But what is a foreign intelligence agency? Isn't all intelligence the same? No, not really, though one form can and often does bleed into another. We in Canada distinguish between foreign and security intelligence and can turn to the Canadian Security Intelligence Service Act for some illumination. In Section 12 of the Act, security intelligence is defined as Intelligence respecting activities that may on reasonable grounds be suspected of constituting threats to the security of Canada. Meanwhile, in Section 16 of the Act, foreign intelligence is laid out as in relation to the defense of Canada or the conduct of the international affairs of Canada, the collection of information or intelligence relating to the capabilities, intentions, or activities of any foreign state or group of foreign states, or any person other than a Canadian citizen, permanent resident, or Canadian corporation. In a nutshell, security intelligence seeks to thwart those who mean to do us harm. Foreign spies and terrorists, for example. It's about gathering information that will protect Canada from threats. It is worth highlighting that this kind of intelligence knows no borders. CSIS is allowed to recruit, handle, and pay sources and post agents anywhere in the known universe to protect us from bad guys. On the other hand, foreign intelligence provides information to help manage our relations with other nations. This involves finding information on the capabilities, intentions, and activities of state or individual actors within the political, diplomatic, defense, or even economic realm. But there are crucial limits on this capability. Despite its name, CSIS is simultaneously a security and foreign intelligence service. Importantly, however, CSIS cannot collect foreign intelligence abroad under any circumstances. It can only collect foreign intelligence domestically within Canada. Doesn't this sound counterintuitive? Here we are the outlier. The US has the CIA, the UK has MI6, Australia has its Australian Secret Intelligence Service, and even little New Zealand has the New Zealand Security Intelligence Service. 
It therefore remains a valid question why Canada has opted not to have an independent foreign intelligence capability or allow CSIS to collect it outside our borders. The matter has been a political football for decades. The drafters of the CSIS Act decided to limit the new agency's functions, insisting it should be a civilian domestic intelligence when it split off from the RCMP back in 1984. The Harper government promised to look into creating a new organization during the 2006 election but never got around to it. And more recently, the former National Security Intelligence Advisor Jody Thomas announced that having Canadian spies abroad was not a priority. So where does this leave us? It should be noted that we do have a foreign intelligence agency of a sort, the Communications Security Establishment. But CSE is a signals intelligence body, not a human intelligence one. Signals intelligence is passive in nature. That means it can collect what it can from what others say or transmit. Meanwhile, human intelligence is active in that you can tell a source what to ask or follow up on. While signals intelligence is an important part of intelligence, it is not the complete picture. We need an independent voice on foreign intelligence for a variety of reasons. When it comes to Five Eyes intelligence, Canada cannot be seen merely as a taker and never a giver of information. Being seen as a non-contributing partner will lead to missed economic and strategic opportunities, such as our conspicuous absence from AUKUS, diminishing geopolitical influence, and increasing isolation as allies leave us behind and enemies prey on us for being weak. The consequences of our freeloading could be even bigger than we presently appreciate. How far can we push our allies before we risk being booted from Five Eyes altogether? Furthermore, only we as Canadians can determine and truly satisfy Canadian interests. Yes, allies are your friends, but sometimes even close pals disagree. We cannot expect others to keep as watchful an eye on our well-being as they do their own. They simply will not have the same incentives or motivations that we do, nor should they. Canada's overall security and interests must ultimately rest in Canadian hands. How difficult would it be to build a brand new foreign intelligence service? Quite difficult, actually. The easiest approach would be to have CSIS perform the function fully. This would only require the dropping of the Within Canada Clause from Section 16 of the CSIS Act. However, for this function to really succeed, it would need proper resourcing and independence within the organization. For instance, my colleagues have talked about the idea of establishing a separate directorate within CSIS. This is what New Zealand does. What would be more difficult to do is to create an organization from scratch. Qualified people would need to be found, cleared, trained, and deployed. The Minister of Public Safety would have another file added to his or her plate. Policies and procedures would need to be put in place. While the total costs are unknowable, it is safe to assume they would run into the tens of millions of dollars. Cover stories would have to be crafted for agents to work safely abroad. Agreements with allies would need to be struck. Source protection would have to be prioritized. Foreign intelligence poses challenges that security intelligence does not. Since the Cold War and through the post-9-11 period, Five Eyes has agreed on the threats we face. We rightfully recognize that we needed to cooperate 
to defend our collective safety. But foreign intelligence is a much more competitive game. Yes, we are still close allies with the US, UK, Australia, and New Zealand. But there are occasions when we may be vying for the same goal. For example, this could be for purely national and not international reasons, such as a major economic project. It will not always be within our national interest to share all data with our allies. Intelligence agencies, including our own, can and do limit some data to their own nationals, referred to in the business as no foreign, or in Canada as Canadian eyes only. Regardless of the onerous tasks that underlie a new foreign spy body, the issue seems to be more or less moot in Canada. No government has made it a priority and there is little likelihood any future one will. There are several reasons for this disinterest. Canada suffers from a woefully inadequate intelligence culture, unlike our Five Eyes partners. By this I mean that intelligence is not appreciated or even read on a regular basis by senior officials, elected and or appointed, up to and including the PM. This was most recently demonstrated in the fiasco surrounding the People's Republic of China's foreign interference in our federal elections and the subsequent inquiry, which shows that intelligence pointing to a clear threat to our democracy was simply shunted aside. While this is security intelligence rather than foreign intelligence, having an independent agency operating abroad would contribute to our understanding of these harmful actors. Security and foreign relations are not seen as important issues by most politicians. No election was ever lost or won on these fronts. Our MPs often cater to diaspora politics, and some may feel that focusing on foreign intelligence could upset voters. Ironically, our vast immigrant population would put us in a great position to recruit agents to help an intelligence agency using these people and their cultural and linguistic knowledge to produce better foreign intelligence for our leaders on global issues. Don't hold your breath. Canada will not get its own CIA in the near future. We will remain a bit player on this front. As a result, our government will be in a poorer position when it comes to understanding what is happening outside our borders. And yet we do benefit from the foreign intelligence our Five Eyes friends choose to send our way while refusing to contribute our fair share. It seems to be the Canadian way. That was a commentary by Phil Gursky. He has worked for CSIS in the past as a strategic terrorism analyst. You can find the full text of his article on our website, thehub.ca. Our second essay is by Michael Kempa, a criminologist based out of the University of Ottawa. He is writing today on the Foreign Interference Inquiry how our democracy's weaknesses are being exploited when foreign entities do interfere, and what the public can expect from the inquiry's findings. Justice Marie-José Hoag's foreign interference inquiry concluded its first week of public sessions earlier this month, focusing on how the Commission will balance transparency in the public interest with maintaining secrecy in Canada's and our foreign security partners, national interest, all while plowing through volumes of sensitive intelligence. The stakes for getting this balance right when the real probing sessions of the Commission resume next month could not be higher for our democracy. First, we must consider what this inquiry is about. 
Hogue picks up where special rapporteur David Johnston dejectedly left off in mid-2023, probing last year's explosive media reports of CSIS leaks that China, now adding Russia, India, and other foreign states, have illegally attempted to tilt the balance of the 2019 and 2021 federal elections in favor of their interests. Furthermore, that Canadian political leaders and our intelligence institutions both dropped the ball and have demonstrated little will or capacity to pick it back up. In this, we are not talking about the type of overt meddling that many voters find irksome or inappropriate, such as high-profile public statements by foreign political figures endorsing or criticizing certain candidates from afar. Rather, we are talking about the clandestine efforts of opponent states to corrupt and exploit weaknesses in our democratic process to create a richer global environment for the fortunes of their competing authoritarian and supremacist ideologies. Ensuring the election of sympathetic government officials and sowing disorder in established democracies are key strategies in the shady world of geopolitics. The details of alleged interference that have been building since last year have rightly shaken Canadian voters which is the very intention of hostile ideological opponents when they stick their tentacles into our politics in the first place. When it comes to our elections, the allegations that are damaging public confidence the most are stories concerning the PRC's, and now the Indian government's, support of preferred candidates in local federal nomination contests where candidates for the election are selected by local party membership Worse are allegations surrounding these stories that party leaders, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau himself, were informed about these irregularities by CSIS and did little to nothing about them. I have been on the ground during many such nominations, including my own feeble and naive attempt in 2015 to run in Scarborough, Ontario for the federal Liberals, and can confirm for readers without impugning any public figures currently under the microscope, that the general form of concerns that have been raised about foreign actors leaning on local diaspora communities to get behind strategic candidates, or else, is apparent to everyone working on local campaigns of all political stripes in urban centers across Canada. Busloads of confused-looking people of a homogeneous identifiable group wearing scannable bracelets and being herded to a local nomination vote do not tend to occur organically. The or-else motivators that foreign states can ignite under their diasporas include the threat of yanking credentials to stay in Canada, as well as physical and financial threats at both the personal level and against family who may remain in countries of origin. Such nominations are ripe for the picking, taking place largely outside the legal umbrella of the Federal Elections Act and under the regulatory eye of private political parties and their own rules. Without much in the way of direct and easy-to-establish criminal liability, it would be understandable if political parties looked the other way once they calculate that any foreign interference gives them an electoral edge. Or it may be that the cost of intervening might be too high in terms of public scandal, embarrassment, and electoral loss. Once elected, having preferred candidates in place in minority governments sows exactly the type of domestic procedural self-absorption that allows foreign states to pursue objectionable foreign policy with diminished international attention.
A more ambitious goal is to have members of the government in place who are directly corruptible by donations and other means to directly represent the interests of foreign states in the legislative and parliamentary processes. It is difficult to imagine a set of allegations that might surface that would better undermine the increasingly fragile public trust and investment in Canada's electoral and political processes. Likewise, it is difficult to imagine a time when compelling but untested notions of witting tolerance or possibly encouragement of foreign interference could do more damage than in our pandemic to endemic age of authority fatigue, suspicion of expertise and outright conspiracy culture, driven by a legacy of governmental ethical lapses and concerns over abuse of authority. The needle for Justice Hogue to thread in her public treatment of these most sensitive national security matters is to ensure that the public learns what they have a right and need to know in order to restore confidence in the electoral pillar of democracy. She must do all this while avoiding the disclosure of information that the public simply cannot know for fear that it would reveal to watchful opponent states too much about the operations of our intelligence agencies. The avenues being pursued by the Commission show a great deal of promise but require some hammering out and follow-through in the lead-up to the resumption of hearings in late March. First, the Commission attempted an experiment, permitting the public release of redacted security documents and materials, asking for 13 generic security documents as examples of what could be released to the public, CSIS obliged and produced a few lines of intact text interspersed within pages and pages of blacked-out documents, which reportedly involved 200 hours of labor to prepare. In other words, not a realistic approach. In its place, we are to proceed with the Commissioner having the right to review all sensitive security materials, documentary and spoken testimony, and vigorously challenge participant efforts to withhold any top-secret and classified information from, at least, an in-camera review. While there have been reports that the Commissioner will receive no further information than what was available to Johnston, that is not my reading of her terms of reference. It will be incumbent on Justice Hogue to push for the widest interpretation of those terms to obtain any information she deems relevant to her investigation. Justice Hogue will then direct CSIS and other government agencies to provide public summaries of the sensitive materials that she will sign off on as true and reasonable representations of actual evidence the Commission has reviewed in full. To my mind, this is the value of a formal commission of inquiry conducted by a judge over the special rapporteur approach, however honorable Johnston may be as a person. Specifically, Justice Hogue can lean on the Inquiries Act to pressure the government to make a better effort to disclose information, at least to her behind closed doors. She can then press agencies to produce summaries for the public that hold nothing back, not truly in Canada's national strategic interests, to withhold. What I think the public can and should therefore expect from this inquiry, if it serves its prime purpose of slowing the hemorrhaging of trust in public institutions and political processes, are firm conclusions by the time of the interim report in May. It should clarify whether any member of the current government or other political parties were told about attempts or successes to compromise nominations 
campaign funding, and election processes. Further, the commissioner ought to be able to provide clear statements regarding what any political leader did with this information. Did they take actions that were objectively reasonable in the circumstances? Or was there any witting encouragement or negligence in the face of such information, either for untoward electoral gain or simply to avoid scandal and embarrassment? Later this year, when the Commissioner turns to more systemic issues involving the capacity of our institutions to manage foreign interference long-term, the public should expect firm conclusions about gaps in intelligence operations and agency understandings of national security laws, as well as weaknesses in the laws themselves. Faced with an intelligence culture of reticence and a political culture of winking at ethics, producing a set of reports that will serve the dual interests of reducing public anger and withdrawal from the political processes will require all the legal savvy and personal metal Justice Hogue can muster. That was Michael Kempa appearing in today's Hub. He is a criminologist based out of the University of Ottawa. Well, that is it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive our Monday to Friday newsletter, subscribe to The Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. This podcast was produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin-Granofsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the host of Hub Headlines. Thanks for listening.